Okay, so this morning, um, we are going to be picking back up in the book of Daniel, and you see me here getting my stopwatch out, I'm going to have a way to kind of keep track, keep track of myself up here today, because I already know I got way more material than I've got time to get through, so I'm going to give a precursor by saying that um, what I'm going to, what I'm going to, attempting to do today um, is pick up where we left off last week. Last week we did a, an overview of the entirety of the chapter of Daniel and gave at the beginning a pretty long intro, if you recall. I called it an excursus on the, on the fact that there is a king, that a king is coming and that king is coming to establish a kingdom. And we walked from Genesis through many portions of scripture and through the prophets uh, validating that reality all the way to the point where the disciples in the book of Acts were saying to Jesus as he was about to ascend, is this the time that you're going to be fulfilling what all the Old Testament has been talking about? Is now the time that you're establishing your kingdom? And he said, not yet. Not yet. Just keep waiting. In the meantime, you're going to be my witnesses around the world with the preaching and proclamation of the gospel. That time is coming. And the two witnesses in white there in Acts chapter 1 said to those disciples, hey, this Jesus who you saw go away in that cloud will be coming back in the same way you saw him go away. And so we are still anticipating that event, an actual return of Jesus himself bodily, as was their expectation as well. And it seemed pretty clear in Acts chapter 1 and another portion in Acts chapter 3 verses 17 and 19 that the, the expectation of the disciples and the clear communication to them was that Jesus was coming again bodily for the establishment of his kingdom. So if you're a note taker, you're going to want to take some notes today. And I'm going to try to go slow, but as fast as I can. This is one of those sermons where it's, um, this is more educational. Um, as I've said before, we're a Bible church not all sermons are the same. Not all portions of scripture are the same. Not all texts lay out the exact same. Some lay out in a, very, in a manner where there's a ton of exhortation and, and, a, and a lot of emotive feelings are involved. Today, we're working through again chapter 7. You have to engage your thinking. You have to think. And so I'm saying that up front because if you're not conditioned to that, you might fade off on me somewhere along the way because I'm going to be giving you some detailed information that might seem to you a little bit, hmm, what's it matter? But let me tell you, when we get to the end of this, I'm going to show you why it really matters. Because some of the things and the details that we're talking about are things that you need to know. If you're one of the fortunate ones who are still on planet Earth, when when the, the, the signs of his time start happening, you might want to be perceptive to recognize these things so that you can understand what's happening in the world around you. So it's not that it's unimportant, it is very important, and the details of this matter. And so let's, um, let's look at Daniel chapter 7 again together today. And what I want you to, to know also is that... Um, the perspective that I began last week and will be finishing for you this week is what's called the traditional interpretive view of Daniel. It's known as the recapitulative model. Um, it's also called a consecutive model view of Daniel chapter 7. And I showed you this chart 
um, last week or the week before, but this is what I mean by a recapitulative model or a consecutive model view. See right here, we've got Daniel chapter 2. Remember Daniel 2? And whenever the, the, um, this man was standing upright, and you've got these four kingdoms, the Babylonian, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. In Daniel chapter 2, do you remember that? I'm sure you do because I showed you that glorious chart on many occasions. So the recapitulative model of Daniel 7 or the consecutive model of Daniel 7, which is a traditional view in premillennial theology, is that Daniel 7 basically tells the same story as Daniel's vision tells the same story as Nebuchadnezzar's dream from chapter 2. So these beasts, the lion, the bear, the leopard, and this beast from in Daniel chapter 7 line up. It, it just recapitulates. It retells the same story that Nebuchadnezzar's dream had told. So in essence, what you're getting here from Daniel 7's vision is another way of looking at the exact same information that, Daniel, that Nebuchadnezzar's dream had in chapter 2. And again, this is a very traditional view. Now what we're going to get a little bit more of in Daniel chapter 7 is a little more detailed information on the Antichrist. The, the kingdom who's going to be ruled by an Antichrist, a world leader, who's going to at the end be the, the, the kingdom that's going to be raging against the kingdom of heaven and speaking out monstrous words against God and persecuting God's people. So in Daniel 7, we do get a little bit more detailed information here. So this is the model that I'm going to continue sharing with you throughout the course of this morning. A traditional view known as the recapitulative model, also called the consecutive model view. So why do I articulate that real quickly? Because next week, I'm going to lay out a different view for Daniel 7 for you. It's not, the it's not the main traditional view, and it's called a concurrent view. We will get there next week. That's why you need to take notes. That's why it's important to understand these things. Okay, and, and the, in, the, the significance of the, the, the difference in these two models, we will touch more specifically on next week. So today, I'm going to continue where I left off last week in Daniel 7 with the consecutive model view that it's this right here. Daniel sees the exact same thing that Nebuchadnezzar's dream saw in chapter 2. And I want to start by giving you a, a quote from one of the leading scholars in this view. It's uh, John Waldard. He was the president of Dallas Theological Seminary for upward, I think upwards of 45 years, something like that. Oh, I need to fix that. Thank you, Pastor Matt. Boom, it's going to make it bigger. Thank you. Yeah, John Walvard um, was the president at Dallas for probably 45 years, and I was one of the fortunate few. There was a class. He, he, he had a class there when I was still a student, and um, he was in his 90s, and it was the last class that Dr. Walvard taught at Dallas Seminary, and it was my last year, so I had first dibs on getting in, and I was able to get in on that class. And the name of that class was called The Rapture Question, which was a book that he has written called The Rapture Question. And so um, I was very fortunate to get in on that class. And at the, at the young age of 92, his mind was as sharp as, I, as, as you could have imagined. Just from off the top of his head, he would just flow from, from Old Testament to New Testament, and he was just laser sharp 
piercing in on truth from God's word that he had been teaching for over 60 years. So this is Dr. Walvoord here on uh, this this, uh, traditional view. He says, on the one hand in chapter 2, a wicked heathen king is used as a vehicle of divine revelation which pictures world history as an imposing image in the form of a man. In chapter 7, not I chapter 7, in chapter 7, the vision is given through the godly prophet Daniel, and world history is depicted as four horrible beasts, the last of which almost dies, defies, not dies, defies description. I guess my typing got a little bit off there. Chapter 2 considers world history from man's viewpoint as a glorious and imposing spectacle. Chapter 7 views world history from God's standpoint in its immorality, brutality, and depravity. In detail of prophecy, chapter 7 far exceeds chapter 2, and in some sense, the commentary on the earlier revelation. And that's from Walvert's commentary on page 151, as I note for you there. So let's begin here, and again, chapter 7, verse 1. Let's see what we can learn here regarding this model. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. So again, the last time we saw Belshazzar the king was back in chapter 5. And knowing that he died sometime around 562 BC, some nine years before Belshazzar began, became the ruler, it's relatively clear that the timing of Daniel's vision occurred chronologically somewhere between chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Daniel, which lets us know that Babylon is still the ruling empire while God is given, giving this vision uh, to Daniel. Now let's keep moving. Look at verse 2 and 3. It says, Daniel said, Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. So the first thing that we need to kind of get our bearings on is this idea of the four winds of heaven, which were stirring up the great sea. This phrase here, the four winds of heaven, is most often used figuratively as representing the entire known world. It's as if it's the furthest most points of the compass, you know, north, south, east, and west, the four winds of heaven. And we see that language used a couple of times throughout the Old Testament that seems to continue that same concept, that same idea that it's talking about the entirety of the known world. And and, and in this, it lets us know that what Daniel sees in this vision has an impact on the entirety of the world. Because he's looking into this vision by night, and it's the four winds of heaven that are stirring up the great sea. So the next thing that's important for us to make an understanding and a distinction on is this this concept of what is the great sea that's being stirred up. Because we see that four great beasts were coming up from the sea, this sea that has been stirred up, and they are different from one another. We see that there at the end of verse 3. The great sea is to be understood here metaphorically as a reference to the earth. 
and more specifically as a reference to the peoples of the earth. So what Daniel sees is the stirring up of the sea of humanity on the earth, the stirring up of the sea of humanity. And we're going to see this very plainly later on in chapter 7 when we get to the divine interpretation of this dream. And it says it very plainly that the sea and the stirring up of the sea is people coming up from the earth. And I had that in my head. And we'll get there before we're done. Just keep that as a little note bene in your mind that you're still looking to fill that in. There is a reference directly to that. But it seems that this is also kind of what the psalmist, as we looked at last two in Psalm 2, perhaps had a vision of himself when he says, Why are the nations in an uproar? A stirring up of the nations and the peoples devising a vain thing. And the kings of the earth taking their stand and the rulers taking counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And so last week we looked at Psalm 2 as one of these older Old Testament psalms that shows the coming of a king and his coming kingdom. And we see this here and it seems that this perhaps is a very similar idea of the stirring up of the great sea of humanity, the peoples raging, the nations in an uproar, devising a vain thing against God and his anointed. And we also see this very language very plainly in the book of Revelation regarding the analogous relationship between the seas and the waters of, of, the, of the earth and humanity. In Revelation chapter 17, I've got three passages for us here to, to try to help demonstrate that yet again. In Revelation 17, 1, it says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. And then as this continues down to verse 15, And he said to me, The waters which you saw were the, where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So the, the, one, the great harlot who sits on many waters... This is the, the kingdom that's ruled by the Antichrist makes a direct re reference back to our Daniel 7 passage and the stirring up of the great seas and one of the beasts that comes up out of the seas. And we see here that the waters that the harlot was sitting on is, again, humanity. It's peoples, it's multitudes, it's nations, it's tongues. It's a, the stirring up the raging of the nations is what this waters is. And verse 18, the woman whom you saw is, notice, the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. And so this kingdom that the Antichrist, this last one world dominating power on the earth is going to be ruled by the Antichrist and it's going to be reigning over the entirety of the earth because he's going to subdue the three other major uh, world powers at the time and he will emerge as the strongest world power. We will see some of this. From Revelation 17, we see the great sea is the raging of nations the sea of humanity, and they're raging against God. Now, let's go back to, to verse 3. Let's go back to verse 3. And four great beasts, Daniel 7, 3, four great beasts were coming up from the sea. We're coming up from the sea, and this is the sea of humanity. And we see that they are different one from the other. Now, these four great beasts uh, would thus, in the recapitulative view, would be representing the four world powers as was seen by Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2. This would be the, 
the, the um, what do we say here? Yeah, here's my great chart right here. I didn't make it, by the way. I'm just claiming it. So you got Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, again, Greece, and again, Rome, right? So this would be these four beasts that would be coming up from the sea, these, the sea of humanity would be, again, these, this sweep of world human power from Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece to Rome. And then, of course, there's the gap of time between uh, Rome and a revived Rome, which is what we have right down here, where we see right here, have not seen yet a reviving of the, the toes, partly mixed with iron and clay, and then ultimately uh, a kingdom of Christ that's going to come in and smash the entirety of this statue and uh, cause another kingdom to be established on earth that's going to be like a growing mountain that says in chapter 2 and it's going to grow and take over the entirety of the the earth and so that's that's what it says and so these four beasts that were coming up from the sea this sea of humanity would be these four kingdoms again the recapitulative model these four kingdoms that Nebuchadnezzar's dream had already seen and, and also, the last beast that Daniel sees is the emergence of this Antichrist figure here. And we're going to, when we get here in, later into to chapter 7 here, we're going to show how there's this connection between this beast and then this uh, kingdom that the Antichrist is going to be ruling over. So we'll get into a little bit more detail on that. And it's in Daniel 7 where we get the most detailed information regarding Antichrist and his and his uh, rule than we did in chapter 2. So that's where we get more progressive revelation showing us what, what that's going to look like. But now let's take a look at the first beast specifically in verse 4. Notice what we have here. He says, The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. The first beast thus describes, if you will, the, the great power, might. We've got a lion, so powerful, uh, the most powerful of animals, the, the king of the, of the beasts, the lion. And we've also got wings of an eagle. So we've got power, might, we've got speed, which would be descriptive of the Babylonian empire. And it's also mentioned by, by, by many that, that uh, the winged lion uh, image was guarded the gates at the royal palaces of, uh, there in Babylon. So that, that image of a lion with eagle's wings was a known image within Babylon. And it seems fitting here that Daniel was given in his vision a description of Nebuchadnezzar's great humiliation. Remember his great humiliation is described in chapter 4? And so... In the uh, recapitulative model, that's what we would be seeing here towards the end of verse 4 here would be that great um, humiliation and rest restoration of, of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, that he was made to be like an animal, but then he was restored back to having a mind like a human. And some of his authority was given back to him for a period of time. We saw that there in chapter 2. So this is how... The first beast in this consecutive model would be identified and described as being likened unto the great power of Babylon. 
the grave. Now let's take a look at the second beast in verse 5, which would be representative of the Medo-Persian kingdom. He says here in verse 5, And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. Again, here Daniel sees the, the, the Median Persian kingdom as described in chapter 2. And here it's resembling in Daniel's vision that of a, of a bear, of a large, uh, less agile uh, than the lion, less swift than would be the lion with the, e with the, with the eagle's wings, but very ferocious indeed. And Walvert in his commentary, listen to how Walvert in his commentary describes um, the Median Persian kingdom through the usage of this language. He says, the meaning seems to be that the second empire will be powerful like a bear, ferocious, but less majestic, less swift, and less glorious than that of the one preceding it, which was the Babylonian empire and in that we see here in verse 5 that this bear was raised up on one side it says three rib ribs were in its mouth between its teeth arise devour much meat again Walvert says this regarding that description of this bear he says why however does the bear raise itself on one side I thought that was a good question myself he said although the, although the scriptures do not answer directly probably the best explanation is that it that it represented the one-sided union of the Persian and Median empires. Persia at this time, although coming up last, was by far the greater and more powerful and had absorbed the Medes. So Walvert in his commentary, though perhaps giving other ideas of what it might have been, he says probably the best explanation that he has come up with is that it's just speed and agility. So when you put the the speed and agility of a leopard with, the, with not just two wings, but now four wings of the bird of prey, you're going to have a very swift, agile kingdom. And as is known of Alexander the Great, he conquered most of the known world at that time at a blitzkrieg speed unknown to any conquering on, human, on, on planet Earth uh, ever in history. And so that would be thus indicative of its leopard-like qualities and it's having four wings of a bird. But it also, um, we see here at the very end, after getting the description of what this beast looks like, we're told that dominion was given to it. There at the very end of verse 6. And dominion was given to it. So all of this right here is pretty much just a description. And, and we're told dominion was given to it. Now, let me quote to you again from Walvard in his commentary uh, on this, and I think you will kind of see some of the connections that he's making with regard to some of these descriptions. See where, right here where it says this beast had four heads? Walvard's going to pick up a little bit here what I'm about to tell you in helping us to understand the four-headed nature of this beast, this leopard-looking beast with the four wings. Walvard says in his commentary, with the swiftness of a leopard, Alexander the Great conquered most of the civilized world all the way from Macedonia to Africa and eastward to India. The lightning character of his conquests is without precedent in the ancient world 
and this is fully in keeping with the image of speed embodied in the leopard itself and the four wings on its back. It is a well-established fact of history that Alexander had four principal successors. These four kings, and hence the four heads of the image, these four kings and their reigns were according to Kael, Lysimachus, who held, this is after the fall of Alexander the Great and the dividing of the Grecian Empire into four different rulers managing the ruling of what once was the great uh, Grecian Empire. Lysimachus, one of those four kings, who held Thrace and Bithany, Cassander, who held Macedonia and Greece, Seleucus, who controlled Syria, Babylon, and the territories as far east as India, and Ptolemy, who controlled Egypt, Palestine, and Arabia, Petra. So, Walbert here helps give us an understanding of the image that we see in this beast, in that it was a beast that had four heads. And he says, in view of the transparent fact that Alexander did have four generals who succeeded him and divided his empire into four divisions, neither more nor less, it would seem that the interpretation of the four wings and the four heads as referring to the divisions of the Grecian empire with their rulers is the best interpretation. So that gives us an understanding in this recapitulative model, this consecutive model of how the description is given of these beasts and how they line themselves up with world history as was laid out there in chapter 2 with Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Now that brings us to the fourth beast, which deals with the Roman Empire. And Daniel says, after this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. It's said to be dreadful terrifying and extremely strong and thus Rome was the largest the strongest lasting of all the kingdoms that have previously been mentioned and was terrifying in that uh, unlike the previous kingdoms Rome was considerably more brutal um, to to the nations that they were conquering they were a much more brutal people than were the previous they were dreadfully terrifying and extremely strong and we see here also that they had large, this beast had large iron teeth, which is somewhat another identifier with the Roman Empire. If you remember, it was the legs of iron, right? And so here we have this beast with the iron teeth, and that would be another connecting point in this consecutive view model that would indicate for us that this beast is indeed dealing with the iron legion, that which is Rome. And it also says that it devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder, which in the um, consecutive view, the remainder, the understanding of that would refer to the previous kingdoms, those other m major world kingdoms, Babylon, Medo, Persia, and Greece, that it trampled down those preceding kingdoms that went before it. And again, 
where does it say? It says that, that, that we're right here, before it. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And so it trampled those kingdoms down. Now, those kingdoms obviously weren't there. This is a consecutive model. These kingdoms had overlapped one another, each one taking over the other. But Rome, when it took over Greece and, and then basically took over most of the known world, it conquered, in essence, all of those. And that's what Daniel is seeing here within his vision. And again, we see here in the, in the text, it says that this beast was different from all the preceding beasts that went before it. Again, Rome was different in many aspects. Um, and we're going to see in verse 8, as, he continue, as Daniel's vision continues and he sees more with regard to this beast, we're going to see some of the specific reasons why it was significantly different than those that preceded it. And one of those things that makes it exceedingly different is that it had ten horns. Okay, so we have the ten horns that are on this last beast, this fourth beast. And as you notice, the other beasts were identified as a lion and um, a bear and a leopard. This one's just identified as a fourth beast, which is dreadful, terrifying, extremely strong. It had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. The remainder were those kingdoms that went before it. But here we see again this unique distinction that it had ten horns. A ten-horned beast. And it's at this point of the description of this fourth beast that there's really no correspondence to the Roman Empire. There's been a lot of different people look into this and study this to try to find where in history back in the time of the Roman Empire or even in the Grecian Empire was there anything that corresponded to or correlated with 10 horns referring to 10 different rulers or kingdoms and there's really nothing that can correspond to that in the history books and so it's at this point that um, this recapitulative model is able to look back and make a comparison to Daniel chapter 2. And looking back at Daniel chapter 2 where you see there at the very end of that dream you have the, the feet and on that feet you have this ten-toed kingdom that we're still waiting for uh, which we made reference to as being a, a revived Roman kingdom or a revived European League of Nations of sorts whose ultimate leader would himself be the Antichrist. And so this is the, the merging point of this beast and the uniqueness towards the end of time, i.e. the emergence of the Antichrist and his kingdom would be through the ten horns of this beast and the ten toes that were partly of iron and partly of clay um, there in Daniel chapter 2. And so... We're going to see here in verse 8, as we move on to verse 8 next, we're going to get more detailed information with regard to those horns. So that the vision narrows. And in verse 8, while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn. So while I was contemplating the horns, that would be a reference to the ten horns. Behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering 
great boasts. So here in verse 8, we become privy to, again, what we would call progressive revelation, additional information that previously we did not have before us. And specifically, we see the emergence of this little horn, the Antichrist, this little horn that overpowers three of the then ten world powers. These, these ten horns would, are going to be indicative of ten world leaders, thus perhaps being the, the, the revived European League of Nations. There would be perhaps ten of those um, that would be dominant. There might be even some smaller ones that were kind of clumped onto it, which would seem to indicate that this little horn was somehow clumped in amongst the ten horns, and this one rose up among them. It came up among them, and it overpowered and overcame three of those ten. Of the original ten, this one little horn became a uh, more powerful uh, world ruler and somehow uh, garnered the support of the remaining uh, seven rulers that would, that would be on uh, leading uh, within that European League of Nations, and they all decided that they would follow after him. And so in Daniel's vision, one of the distinctions that we have from Nebuchadnezzar's dream is we have greater detail and information with regard to this little horn that has a mouth that's uttering great boasts. Now, the only thing that we don't have currently, if you're thinking of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, following the, that kingdom that we're still waiting on with the ten toes, from which the Antichrist um, emerges from, is the emergence of the rock, right? So from Daniel 2, at the very end of that, you have the rock that comes, smashes the feet, and the entirety of that statue is demolished and completely removed. So the only thing that we don't have here is, an, is the continuation of that unless what we see next from verses 9 through verse 14 sheds light on that rock, which, you guessed it, it does. So let's keep moving and let's take a look at verses 9 down through verse 14. And we're going to see three things. The first in verses 9 and 10, we're going to see that Daniel has a vision of heaven. Uh, a vision of heaven at the time of the final judgment of the nations on the earth. We're going to see that in verses 9 and 10. Secondly, in verses 11 and 12, we're going to see Daniel's vision. He's going to see the destruction of this little horn. Who represents the last and final world ruler whose kingdom is thus smashed by, again, this rock from heaven which number three is where we're going to see that, the kingdom of the Son of Man who comes with the clouds of heaven and is brought in and brings in the beginning of an everlasting dominion, which is the, the, the dominion and rule of Christ. So there is, in essence, our rock from chapter 2 that comes in and smashes, see the destruction of the little horn, that statue and the powers of man. So we do have this, it's just in a different uh, version than what we see in chapter 2. So notice the first of this in verses 9 and 10, Daniel's vision of heaven at the time of the final judgment of the nations on the earth. In verses 9 and 10, Daniel says, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days took his seat. 
His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. And myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. So in these two verses, we see the Ancient of Days here clearly identifiable as God the Father, the eternal God, whose throne of judgment is massively ablaze with flames of fire. It says that myriads of heavenly hosts were attending him and were standing before him. And then we see that the court set and the books were opened from which the Ancient of Days was to pass judgment. And the judgment that we're going to see passed picks up in verse 11 and 12. Daniel sees the vision of the judgment, the destruction of this little horn. And in verse 11, Daniel said, I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. And if you remember at the very end of verse 8, there was that little horn that was speaking what? Boastful words. So it's without connection. This is in reference to the little horn that's from that last beast. The ten horns, the one little horn that emerged among them, overpowered three of those. This is the little horn that Daniel is seeing here. Again, then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, judgment, And its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. So here we see that Daniel's vision has shifted from from heaven back down to earth to the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. Um, Again, uttering great boasts from its mouth. And Daniel... Uh, kept looking at this earthly scene until judgment was rendered. And it said very specifically, the beast was slain, its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. So Daniel, in a, with a, in a vision and a preview of the end of, of all that, sees, in essence, the, the, the end of the world as we know it. That might make an interesting song. You know, it's the end of the world as we know it. Now, this is like at the end of human history as we know it. The, the, the destroying of the kingdom of Antichrist because that happens with the coming of the Son of Man on clouds. And in Revelation 19, he's got a sword that comes from his mouth and it comes to kill and destroy the nations of the earth. And that's the nation that is raging, thus speaking great boasts against the God of heaven. So uh, Daniel sees the end of the world as we know it because the force needed to to destroy the final world power, again, is nothing less than the power of heaven. Which, again, we see paralleled with Revelation 19 and the destruction of the final world power at the hands of the Son of Man at the time of Christ's second advent to establish his kingdom. And so here we have that rock from heaven. Now, as for the rest of verse 12... And as it says, the, the rest of the beast, he says right here, as for the rest of the beast, 
uh, whose dominion was taken away but were granted an extension of life for an appointed period of time. Um, this verse is one of the more challenging verses with regard to the continuation view model of Daniel 7 because it seems, it seems here to state uh, that in verse 12 that the other beast of Daniel 7, the lion, the bear, and the leopard, while having their power taken away from them were granted an extension of life for an appointed time. It's best really to understand that, that, that Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, though long gone off the earthly scene, were not actually destroyed. They were simply um, enfolded. They were, their, um, their ethnicities became a part of the, um, that lasting world power as they went from Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece to Rome. There was the, the accumulation of all these nations down into the ten toes. And remember it says that they were a, that, that last ten-toed revived sort of a European league was a weakened league because the mixture of the peoples that were all a part of that, the differences of their ethnicities made them weak. And so it seems that this is perhaps the best way to understand that the rest of these beasts, though dominion was taken away, there was an extension of life appointed to them. And so when the rock came in Daniel 2 and smashed the feet, the extension of life was granted to all of them. And in, Daniel's, in Daniel chapter 2, when the rock smashed the feet, that's when the entirety of the statue came toppling down. Those world powers, though, were, though overtaken one to the other in that statue, they were never completely demolished. So thus, an extension of life was granted to them in the other nations. But when that rock hits the feet, that's when finally all these nations collectively are done away with. And that's perhaps the best explanation for the consecutive model, I mean the continuation model that I could come up with in reading Walvert and some other commentaries as to how to understand this extension of life that was granted to these other beasts. And I hope you're seeing some of the difficulties with regard to interpretation when we're dealing with apocalyptic literature such as Daniel. I hope that you're appreciating uh, that and some of the struggles that many go through who take deep dives into that. Now, I want to finish this third section here, and this is where we're going to end today because the, the, the clock is telling me this is a good time to end, and some of your faces are telling me this might be a good time to land this plane as well. There's a lot, a lot still needing to be absorbed in, in this, um, and, and I don't, I'm not denying that at all. I'm trying to go as slow as I can but as fast as I can. There's a lot to be absorbed here. But notice verse 13 and 14. The kingdom of the Son of Man who comes with the clouds of heaven. Bringing in the everlasting dominion of Christ. Daniel sees Christ's coronation. He says in verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions. And behold with the clouds of heaven. One like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days. And was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Here we see that Daniel's vision has shifted now again from earth back up into heaven. 
before the Ancient of Days, who we saw there in verse 9 and 10, God the Father, the Eternal One. And here Daniel sees one like a Son of Man coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Now, this title, Son of Man, is a title only befitting of the Son of God. Jesus Christ, which is confirmed many times over in the Gospels, especially in the book of Matthew. And you may recall, um, on many occasions, Jesus referring to himself as that, but none more pointed, it seems, than in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through 17, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. It says he was asking his disciples, who do people say that and here's that phrase from Daniel. Who are, what's the scuttlebutt amongst your Jewish brethren as to who the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 11 actually is or would be? And they said, verse 14, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. In other words, their thoughts are all over the place as to who perhaps this son of man from Daniel 7, who's going to be re the recipient of a kingdom where all peoples and nations, of er men of every language might serve him, and a dominion that's everlasting that will, never be, that will never pass away and could never be destroyed. So who are people saying this is? And they gave a rendition of who they thought it might be. But in verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And this one verse that I just jumped over purposefully is the indicating verse where Jesus himself affirms unto himself the recognition that he is, he is the Son of Man. He said to them, But who do you say that I I am. Who do you say I am? He's asking them, who do people say the Son of Man is? They gave him all these different options. And he says, but who do you say I am? And he's Jesus here making a direct, not even implied, explicit reference to himself being this. And he said, yes, you are indeed the Messiah, the Christ, the Messiah, the Messiah who was to come and to establish an eternal kingdom ruling over the throne of David. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But my father in heaven, the ancient of days, he's the one who did. So again, an unequivocal claim to being the son of man. And as you continue reading through Chapter 17 of Matthew, Jesus keeps saying, the Son of Man is going to be crucified. The Son of Man is going to raise from the dead. The Son of Man, he uses that, uh, that title for himself um, somewhere around 15 to 20 times, if my counting was correct, in the book of Matthew alone. So Jesus is indeed the Son of Man. Jesus is indeed the, the one who Daniel sees uh, being coronated uh, before the ancient of days as king not only of heaven but a king who's going to come to earth and is going to rule and reign jesus is the rock that's cut without hands establishing a worldwide kingdom that will have no end and it's in daniel 7 
by means of progressive revelation, that we see that that rock is an eternal personage. That that rock was connected with a son of man who went before the ancient of days. So we have greater revelation. In Daniel chapter 2, it was that of a rock cut without hands. In Daniel 7, we see that it's a personage. It's not just a rock cut without hands. It's a person. It's the son of man. Again, who in Matthew 17 revealed himself to his disciples as being Jesus Christ himself. So, in wrapping this up, as challenging perhaps as it is, this is indeed the traditional interpretive view known as the recapitulative model or the consecutive model view of Daniel 7 and how scholars have worked to demonstrate uh, the consecutive nature of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and Daniel's vision. Are you inspired yet? I feel worn out. I don't know about you, but I'm exhausted. Man, that's a lot. And so, what we're going to do uh, next time we're together is we're going to continue by then going into the last section of Daniel 7, verses 15 down through verse 28. Uh, where we are supplied with some details from an, what we would call an inspired interpretation of this vision because Daniel asks for help in understanding some of the things that he sees. And again, within verse 15 down through verse 27 specifically, where do you imagine that the majority of that inspired interpretation is going to be focused on? It barely gives us any information at all about those thir first three kingdoms, those first three beasts. And it focuses primarily and almost exclusively on the horn, the, um, the, the rule and reign of Antichrist at the very end of the time, at the end of Daniel's 70th week. So we're going to pick up there and we're going to finish that consecutive model, that recapitulative model next week. And uh, if time allows, we might even start delving back into this other model that I want to share with you that's called the concurrent model, and we'll get more into that then. But for in the meantime, you might need to go back to YouTube, and you might need to listen to last week's message, take copious notes, and your really nice uh, note-taking spiral-bound notebook that we provide you here at Jinx Bible Church so you can take your notes and have consecutive notes, Okay. And I'd encourage you to do that. By the way, I think we were out. Pastor Harkey told me that this past week we got some, some in, and so it's been restocked uh, back there on that shelf. So if, you don't, if, you, if you've yet to grab one of those notebooks, make certain that you do that even today as you're leaving. Well, I feel a bit, Royce, like I just came out of a seminary lecture at Dallas Seminary. So, and, and just think you got all this at... at, at, at a very minimal cost than had you gone to Dallas Seminary. <laughs> so I just downloaded for you everything that Walford would have told you had you had the chance to take his class on Daniel chapter 7. 